Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I have a very special guest from the UK with me, Chloe Comby. And I Mm -hmm. met uh, doing a podcast or something together a while back. And I was fascinated by you and your work uh, with Generation Z, or as known in the UK, Generation Z. Uh, and uh, and I recently saw a piece you did on Andrew Tate on your newly established Substack, and I was like, we should really chat and introduce you to my audience, and hopefully your audience will get to know more about me. Let's see what else. So you're a futurist. Your book uh, is Generation Z or Z, Their Voices, Their Lives, and you have a forthcoming book out in 2024, How to Save the World. That's my kind of book. So I'm very, very (laughs) much aligned. Yes, ambitious. And um, the world needs saving, frankly. Uh, There's a lot of dark forces and a lot of confusion and the internet and uh, predators and malignant narcissists. Let's see you. So let's see you have a uh, uh, number one Apple podcast. What's your podcast name? It's called You Don't Know Me. Um, where I interview many members of Generation Z and mm-hmm. also Generation Alpha or Generation A about lots of different issues. So it's it's very kind of relevant if you're a parent or a teacher or interested in young people in the future. Definitely, they are our future. And I recently mm. interviewed a lawyer, Marcy Hamilton, who is the CEO of ChildUSA.org, the only world think tank pr- proposing children should have rights. They should not be regarded as property. And yes. so we have, you know, someone who's trying to work through the courts and abolish statutes of limitations and such. So let me just finish uh, introducing you. I already mentioned your books. You've directed films for Meta. You're a global speaker, a, a brand and political consultant, and even advised on an American presidential campaign. Which one, may I ask? I'm not actually allowed to say. Um, oh, okay. When I when I do kind of consultancy, um, sometimes I have That's, to sign an NDA. Uh, um, no so problem. So I, I can I can tell. I've, I've done a couple, um, and I did have for both of them have to sign an NDA because it was really interesting. The work wasn't particularly secret, um, yeah. And I will be doing something a bit more um, visible. But we were particularly focusing on how to turn younger voters who might be very active online into actual in the booth voters. So that was yep. super interesting. So I did kind of about nine months on that. Um, Wonderful. I am under an NDA still. No worries. I uh, I know about NDAs on good good NB- NDAs that are you know make sense and bad ones like cults have people sign them so they can't sue them and uh, you know. The- this was definitely court. one of the good guys. Uh, this yeah, was one no, of the good I'm guys, sh- and it was definitely on the left. It wasn't. I wasn't going to make you say, but that's all good. So, um, so as you know, my my podcast is called the Influence Continuum because I talk about influence from ethical informed consent, influence that respects conscience and and critical thinking and free will and the freedom to leave or to question the authority and all the way to the unethical, destructive, authoritarian side. And so for me, some are squarely in the undue influence where I'm interviewing someone who's an ex-member of a cult. Some are squarely in the 
ethical influence side, like I interviewed someone on parenting, I interviewed someone on gratefulness, and uh, someone on uh, a, a healthy approach to uh, embodied mind therapy. Mm. Um, and for you, I'm wanting to get to know you and your work better. I think that it's going to touch on the whole continuum, really, from your interviews with uh, young people. Mm. And before we get started, for those listeners who don't know, what is Generation Z? Can you share the definition and then what the, the definition of Generation Alpha is, A? So on, I think on a very simplistic level, um, Generation Z or Z are roughly born between the ages. There's a, a little bit of flexibility, but 1996 to sort of 2008, 2009. So they're roughly kind of 12, 13 to, to the ages of 24. And then mm -hmm. Generation Alpha or Generation A um, would be 2008 slash 9 to 2020. I think putting newborn babies into generations is probably a, a little bit premature. Um yeah. And there's, I mean, I mean, obviously, a lot is made of the fact that these are the first kind of digital generations. But actually, I think millennials were the first digital generation. So fundamentally, and I think that's particularly um, present to this conversation, this is the first generation that were born and, and raised and came of age with the, the modern internet in sort of social media and the kind of thought silos and the internet bubbles that we exist in. And I think very presently, the absolute wallop influence of essentially social media, which has influenced not just, um, you know, our, our kind of communication and how we socialise, but everything from the music we like, how we vote, and I think increasingly how we think. So this yep. is absolutely a, a generation that were not in any way born in the analogue world. They came of age completely digitally and were shaped and formed um, in, in the in the fire of that and all those things that are you know kind of good and quite a lot of the kind of the dark and, and toxic stuff too. Yeah, and my listeners know I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I'm 68, and uh, <laughs> so I remember this thing called the internet before it was a thing. And one of my clients had an uncle who was a computer scientist who said you need to be on this thing, and he created a website. I think the, the first interweb. one was s <laughs> s or you know net or something. In any oh, wow. case, I mean, I I I didn't get into video gaming. Like I did Pac Man for like twenty minutes, and I was like, this is boring. Mm. It just didn't interest me. But but I have a twenty year old son, and we did everything we could to try to delay his acquisition of a smartphone. Uh, when he was in middle school, we were advised to give him a flip phone. And of mm. course, as soon as he could, you know, now he's totally addicted and won't listen to dad, no matter what I try <laughs> to say about, you know, bad actors on the internet. Another very fascinating interview, Chloe, that I did was with a Harvard psychiatrist and neuro uh, social neuroscientist Carl Marcy. He wrote a book called Rewired. It's a Harvard University book about I read that. the the effects on on young minds. And he mm -hmm. all the all the specialists say keep them off screens for the first three years, even even with TV or iPads or whatever, because they need that interaction with human beings. To those mirror neurons uh, need to to develop and be pruned, and of course, they need children need to feel loved, and like they're the focus of 
the attention of a, a loving adult. I mean, honestly, I think that in terms of uh, smartphone addiction and our addiction to screens, we're kind of in that 1950s slash 60s phase that happened with the cigarette industry where they were kind of going, no, 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 it's fine. Pregnant women have cigarettes. Everybody should smoke. And I think that they're really holding back, actually, the extent that they can dam damage kind of cognitive development. I think there's absolutely no debate over the fact that they really affect our concentration. Um, and I think the, the thing that's really coming out now, and I have interviewed, I, I think I've interviewed more members of Generation Z and, and young people than anyone has done over 10,000 interviews. And I think the extent, and this is globally, and it's very, very apparent in places where there is very widespread social media and and um, mm -hmm. smartphone use is the effect the, the amount it affects our mental well-being and our mental health and i think the impact on you know as you sort of say neurological development and happiness but also depression and well-being the yeah. sense of, of of you know liking yourself and and it's very apparent that the more time a young person spends on social media whether it's so tiktok or instagram or youtube the less of the, the less they seem to like themselves, and also, and I think this connects to what we're going to talk about: the angrier and/or sadder they get, and and there's huge commodity in rage and sadness, and and that's mm. what gets people to kind of stay and click and buy things and read things, and they're really exploiting that with young people, and it really so when you are sad, when you are angry particularly when you're younger, you're exponentially more likely to not only spend more time on that particular site, but purchase things and kind of go deeper. And that's how they make kind of their money. So they're literally commodifying both yep. young and youthful sadness and rage. And that's quite a difficult message to get through to them, but that absolutely is a thing that they commodify. Yeah. And I, I love the social dilemma documentary where with Tristan <laughs> yeah. Harris, the Google ethicist went into interviewing former executives of social media platforms and AI, you know, algorithms. And, um, you know, for me, because my background getting out of a cult, I had mm. to learn about undue influence. And it goes back to Edward Bernays, which I wrote about in The Cult of Trump. And he basically said, you know, you need to create a need and then you can sell a product. So yeah. nobody knew their, their house needed glades air spray, you know, petroleum product, but they invented houseitosis. Oh, the house <laughs> smells terrible. So everyone's going around and needing to buy this thing. And before that, it was just normal, healthy human smells. <laughs> you know, mom's cooking. Go do, ahead. Do you think, do you think um, there's a similarity between uh, physical cults of which the one you escaped and the cultish aspects of our need to be on social media yeah, and, and establish followings and kind of be a figurehead who's influential. Do you think there, would you say that, you know, TikTok or Instagram or Facebook, to a lesser extent Facebook or Twitter are kind of a bit like modern day cults that just that more people are members of? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think about the influence continuum from ethical to unethical and each each thing needs to be evaluated on its own. That's the expert witness in me wanting to be more uh, accurate. But uh, I, I can tell you that uh, I started researching in detail cult recruitment online in 2015 and specifically ISIS recruitment online. 
Uh, and, uh, and so I came to understand how it worked and it was a digitalization of what cults were doing in physical, in I IRL, mm. in real life, uh, and replicating it, uh, online. A big difference though, is back when I was a cult leader in the Moonies, we had to ask people about their backgrounds. We had to find, they had to mm. disclose mom and dad divorced or so-and-so uh, happened. And and I was taught a paradigm of thinker, feeler, doer, believer to try to assess where, to, where the buttons would be that would be most effective to get people involved with the moon cult. Well, this is now with Cambridge Analytica and hacking mm. people's private information and AI and companies like Glue in Colorado that collect this dark data and sell it to third parties. It's we're entering a whole nother level of manipulation and mind mm. control. And I think you're absolutely right about the, the early days of the tobacco industry where they would hire doctors to smoke and they would hire <laughs> actors to smoke, and which is coming back again, by the way. I'm seeing that more and more in films and TV series, a lot of cigarette smoking, which uh, is upsetting. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the, the bottom line is, is the greed model of capitalism that says, you know, caveat emptor, everybody should mm. beware. And if you get fooled, it's on you. That's why I think we do need regulations to protect our data privacy, to, to hold mm. uh, platforms accountable for, for de deleterious effects on people. And uh, there are lawsuits that I'm reading about now going against the, the social media companies. And I think there's like a lot of data that can support these lawsuits and <laughs> they want to try to undermine the government so there won't be regulations. So the more they can create chaos and confusion and disorient or disorientation. And mm. I think if I read correctly, Facebook has 1,500 full-time lobbyists in, in Washington, oh, wow. D.C. There's something way over 1,000. And um, the politicians are not looking out for the kids and looking out for their no. constituents. And that's part and, and, of and, the problem. And and what's quite infuriating is, is in Silicon Valley and the kind of schools that, you know, the titans of technology send their own children to because obviously they're of the age now where they most of them have you know young children or probably middle school age children or if not slightly younger uh they're more often than not screen-free schools because they're happy to expose your children your teenagers to the damaging effects of screens and social media but because they're aware of you know the negative cognitive impact and the negative impacts on self-esteem and 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 all those kind of things that are super important for development um and i mean and i know that there's kind of lots of you know tales on the internet but I, by all accounts quite a lot of them avoid screens themselves and, and and obviously know very well about how much data they take and how much we're being watched and you know not to get too conspiratorial but i i think that in the next 10 years certainly we are going to be we'll become much more aware of the impact of all of this and i think it will be quite a scandal because it, obviously the whole kind of Cambridge Analytica thing was massively scandalous but weirdly I don't think it impinged perhaps on 
people maybe outside of the kind of the newsy and political bubble and i think you, what where people will really react if they if it suddenly becomes evidentially clear that it actually impacted on you know their child's intelligence or well-being or their teen's intelligence or well-being and i think that information probably will come out certainly in the next decade yep i agree with you i'd like to share if i may i was at an autism conference uh, to learn about working with folks on the spectrum many, many years ago. And I met a author of a book called Neurotribes. Uh, his name is Steve Silberman, Chloe. Okay. And um, he, his thesis was basically that people like uh, Bill Gates and, and uh, Stephen Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg are all on the spectrum. And mm. folks who are on the spectrum have very specific you know, uh, comfort zones and creating an environment that's digital where they don't have to interact with people directly face to face. So they, his thesis way back when was that, that the neurotypicals are being rewired to be more, uh, spectrum-y and because they're uncomfortable. I mean, and I see young people, sitting next to each other, texting to each other instead of oh, like absolutely. turning to each other. I mean, I think it, it's, I mean, obviously this is something, you know, for the, for, the, for the medical industry, but certainly I think autism is becoming more common. Um, and I, and, and there's a possibility, I think, obviously that perhaps because we're better at understanding it or diagnosing it. But I, I absolutely agree that autism aside, because obviously that's not my field, but it's massively rewiring how our brains work and how we communicate. And I, I genuinely do think that one of the most obvious things is our level of, well, two things actually, is our levels of concentration. I think that ability for people of all ages just to recall really simple information and information that, you know, a conversation that happened this morning, if it's the afternoon, let alone like, you know, times tables or, 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 you know, recalling kind of historical facts or being yep. able to memorize a poem. But I think the other one without a doubt is rage. I mean, the, the, the manipulation of the globe's emotions, because we spend all this time on, on social media is, is very apparent. And, um, and I think it, it's because, and maybe it affects you more when you're young, but absolutely everything now requires n- not just a response from you, but an extreme response. And, and, and again, it's that, that kind of manipulation because uh, sadness and anger are, are, are the sort of profitable emotions, if you like. But it, it's not a natural state to be in. That I think 20 or 30 years ago, maybe you had an extreme reaction. It's difficult to know, but uh, you know, a couple of times a day. But now, because of the notifications and the fact that we spend a lot of time online, you ex- had this expectation that you have to react to so many things a day. And I think it's both exhausting people um, sort of mentally and emotionally, but it's making them so much angry. And I think that's starting. And maybe that was less apparent in the pandemic. But I think post-pandemic, with all the, there's other things. We're just at this insane levels of rage that you see both online, but you're starting to see in the physical world as well, which is, is quite worrying. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And I'd say the more we're functioning out of our amygdala, our, our you know, part of our brain that, <laughs> that tr- is supposed to keep us safe, it's getting overstimulated. 
and people are lacking the frontal executive, you know, functioning part to analyze, is there's actually danger or is this a phobia? Like, is the mm. source of this information that's making me upset even real and verified? Yes. Or am I just getting triggered and emotionally wanting to connect with my network and be the first one to retweet something or to like mm. something or whatever? So there really is, you know, uh, I haven't read your the draft of your new book yet, but for me, learning about the mind, learning, uh, like being in your body, being in the here and now, having a balance of our critical thinking, our heart, our intuition, and our gut, and having a healthy network to bounce mm. things off of, including having people in our network that don't agree with us politically, mm. but that we respect and they respect us, where we can actually open our minds to the idea that maybe we believe things that are, need to be changed. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that that's the other thing, um, the, uh, the, the sort of the online world has completely failed to replicate real life friendship groups. Because I think people do think of quite often their Twitter following or their Facebook friends or the people that followed them on Instagram or, or, or TikTok as their friendship groups. And certainly I think possibly older people maybe who starts to go out less um have developed these very intense bonds and you see that a lot you know with the whole you know QAnon thing that they genuinely believe that they're kind of in this intimate tribe and, and they alone sort of see the truth um but it but it's not a real friendship group is it it's it's a Correct. kind of there's a, a massive difference between a friendship group and an online tribe but interestingly i see real parallels between um the, the, this sort of, for example, I think the QAnon phenomenon is a really interesting example. This is kind of we're in this tribe and we see this truth, and 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 we are kind of the enlightened ones. And that was what really interested me. I mean, I started noticing this Andrew Tate thing about a year ago, and I remember writing about it and sort of talking to sort of friends, but more explicitly young people in schools. Um, and he was using very, very similar techniques to um, religious extremism, but also the language of, of the QAnon cult, which is you are the enlightened and chosen one. And if you, and aside from the, con we'll get to the content of what he was saying, but if you see and agree with what I'm saying, you are enlightened and you're visionary and you see this. And and I, and it was absolutely no coincidence, really unoriginal, that he pinched the ideas of the Matrix, the kind of the red pill and the blue yep. pill. And for anyone who hasn't seen the film, if you it, it, uh, in, the, in the film Neo is offered a, a red pill and a blue pill, the red pill leads you to kind of this enlightenment, it's hatching from the Matrix, and in the, the blue pill you stay in the artificial world that you already exist in. And it's really interesting that the Matrix has kind of been hijacked somewhat by this kind of these right wing movements. Because actually, the films were by these trans women, and they're very liberal, and they, they by all accounts, yep. represented very liberal ideas. And it's not terribly original that you know people like Andrew Tate are using this idea of kind of staying enlightened and and also sort of staying in the dark. But the way that they've lifted the metaphor is attach it almost to this kind of men's rights movement, the men who, or people who are blue-pilled, 
believe that feminism is good for you and that you know that that there is equality and you should sort of strive for these kind of progressive or you know i hate that word because it doesn't mean anything but woke right. ideals and the red pill is that you are freed from the bonds of wokeism and and you you know you you go back almost to these kind of almost more old fashioned binary ideas about all kinds of things um but it's not so much even the stuff that he was saying which is very a lot of it it's just just nonsense and it's dangerous and it's unoriginal and it's and it's 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 just bs um yeah. but it but but it is effective and you could see it was being effective because he was smart enough to kind of use these strategies of indoctrination and tribalism and in an age where um i think lots of different generations are feeling very uh, disenfranchised and very isolated for lots of different reasons but particularly post pandemic anything and qanon the qanon movement really understood that and that was a hoax in the same way that i think andrew tate and all these people kind of understand that it's kind of quite hoaxy and and a kind of then the movement takes off and they're like whoa that really works so they kind of go further and further with it um but it's very similar techniques it's all about you are alone you are isolated you are feeling sad and you're feeling bad about yourself join us and we will kind of re you know take you to a sort of sense of enlightenment and you will join a crew and you'll never be alone again um and it's almost kind of secondary what you believe it's yep. the whole kind of you know it's the joining thing and and i think that that's kind of being missed so it's not even him that's right. the most important thing it's what it says about mostly boys um who have clearly have got this very very strong need to be part of a movement and have these strong male role models and that is the thing i think we should be striving to understand much mm. more than this kind of cultish figure who will in 6 or 9 months you know particularly if the romanian authorities have their way yeah, being slightly mm -hmm. irrelevant but but the right. trouble is then there'll be a next one because there's always a next one and you know and trump is a bit like tate and you know all those kind of things and clearly in these kind of lonely disconnected times there are definitely a certain type of person that's really attracted to those kind of and they do tend to be men these kind of strong men yes so i'll just confirm and say that you know <laughs> It's cult 101, and when I say cult, I mean destructive cult 101, having a black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil. You know, we have the truth, we're chosen, everyone else mm. is in darkness. This is since 1976 when I got out of the Moonies, I was <laughs> understanding, oh, that's wow. the paradigm. And it's just been digitized. I actually did a lot of research on QAnon, I did a bite model of analysis of, of QAnon as a cult, and it was a PSYOP, uh, not just a hoax. And I, in fact, talked with one of the founders of Anonymous who knew the three people who started it, who said it was a goof on the Trump followers. Sure. And it was only when they realized they could make money selling merch, and then the Russians got involved, that it got... Uh, co-opted by That's the Christian crazy. right and and the Russians. And I believe Russia is involved with Andrew Tate as well. But um, we are social beings. This notion that, mm. you know, humans are individuals and 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 that selfishness is good and and greed is good and altruism is evil. That's Ayn Randian cult ideology mm. that a lot of people have unfortunately adopted. 
And with that, a notion of social Darwinism, like, well, I have more money or I have more followers, therefore I'm better than you, mm. uh, which is, and, and that's a big difference between, back to your point about real friends versus online friends. Real friends accept you for who you are. Um, they may not agree with everything you, you do, or but they care about you fundamentally, but on these uh, unethical uh, ends of things, it's all performance. We will love you if you do what we tell you to do, as long as you toe the line, don't ask questions, don't challenge authority, Absolutely. then you can be part of our group. And the minute you question, like David Weissman, who I wrote about, uh, was a, a Trump MAGA troll, he self-proclaimed who woke woke up and like mm -hmm. realized no 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 and the minute he started questioning Trump everyone turned on him all of his pals mm -hmm. and it just confirmed these are not my friends they don't care about me they were just using me and it's a hard lesson and this is another piece of it is there's a stigma currently to people who leave groups whatever type mm -hmm. of mind control cult it is because the public has this incorrect perception that only weak, stupid people are gullible, people who, who need something. And the truth is human beings need other people. They need to feel important. They need to feel a purpose. They need to feel part of a community. And, and, and so we're, we're starving for that connection and uh, our brains can get hacked by being online. Mm. And, and I, I completely agree with that. And I think the other thing that's really different between um, online social groups and, you know, real life social groups, and I think this is particularly becoming pronounced with, um, actually, I don't, I don't think it's becoming pronounced just with young people. You see it all over. Is I think that even 10 years ago, you used to have so social groups, whether it's at school or college or the workplace, True. that were really diverse. You 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 uh, you went to a party or a festival or you know even a school, and there was a kind of much more of a kind of an easy diversity and and a diversity by choice. And I mean, I grew up with lots of different uh, sort of you know types of friends who had different beliefs and culturally were on a really wide spectrum, whether that was you know music or politics or ethics. And I think now, and you, this is very, very much the case when you go into schools and universities, particularly I think on university campuses, I think schools are still a little bit more diverse, that you see social silos that are replicating, I think, online silos. Yeah. And people have this inability to socialise and be friends with increasingly people who are different from them. And I think that that is a direct consequence. I think there's sort of complex socioeconomic reasons, but I think a lot of that is a direct consequence from our social media conditioning and, and Generation Z and Generation A have grown up online. So yeah. they have been socialised online. So inevitably that is going to spill over into their kind of real, real world social activities. Um, and that's incredibly dangerous because what happens then is that we all become like our version of Fox News and everyone exists uh, or will come to exist in a kind of a social um, silo whereby everybody thinks like them and talks like them and to some extent looks like them and dresses like them and dates like them and loves like them. Um, and, and we'll all 
you know, be increasingly suspicious and resentful of people who aren't in our social silo. And 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 that is, a, I mean, that is just a disaster waiting to happen because, I mean, you in America, you've already seen the consequences of political silos. Increasingly, people are unable to tolerate people, whether it's at a dinner party or in a traffic jam or in a coffee shop, someone who quite evidently has kind of pierced their social comfort levels. You know, they see, you know, someone wearing like a Black Lives Matter t-shirt or a Trump you know, uh, you know, uh, make America great, and and that and that affronts them because it's it's different to how they believe, and you're seeing that so much more, and that is definitely something that I think is being mirrored in the UK. I had a a, a dinner party uh, in the summer, and um, and I, I've sort of kind of invited a diverse set of friends, and one of my friends said, like, I'd really like to come home, but I can't because someone's going to be there who's an ardent Tory, which is someone who votes Conservative here, which is a bit mm. closer to your Republican Party. And I, yep. you know, I thought that was both really funny and intriguing, but interesting that we, and I think America are a little bit ahead of us in that, that people are like, I'm not coming to dinner or hanging out with anyone. It's who not ahead though. It's, it's kind it's, of, you know, depressing that it's Well, behind maybe is Behind, yeah, yes. <laughs> more, or more extreme, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but certainly, and, and, and I mean, in Europe, which I think is extremely, has been traditionally very progressive, you are definitely starting to see the emergence of these kind of social and political and cultural silos. And I genuinely think that that's a consequence of us being socialised um, on online. And I think that that became more extreme during the pandemic when we kind of lost two or three years of natural physical socialization. Yes, I could completely agree. And, um, you know, for me, because I was in a cult and I expressed the same kinds of beliefs as the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, in fact, in my former cult, he said democracy was satanic and we need a theocracy to rule the world <laughs> and gay people should be killed and sent to the spirit world and people, you know, just I believe that. And that's not who I was growing up as a young Jewish male in Queens, by the way, 1.3 miles from Donald Trump's childhood home, um, sure. completely opposite. So for me, um, also because I'm a therapist too, but I, I go out of my way to try to model that I'm not threatened to talk with Trump believers or anyone else. And I get attacked like, you're brainwashed, you're in the cult of Soros. And my response is, oh, really? Tell me more. What makes you mm -hmm. say that? Like, what specifically do you, do you, do you think? I get curious, in other words, and res but I'm respectful. But I want to have a conversation about it. Go do ahead, you think, th think thinking about the Tate or the QAnon or the Trump thing or Brexit here, which is definitely cultish, do you think yep. that from your experience of, of leaving a cult that there is a way to break this fever or break the spell or is definitely. are we too far gone? Uh, no, what, it's a hundred thousand percent. That's my prescription for how to save the world is educating everyone how to discern the difference between love and conditional love with we'll love you if you do what we tell you and if you're obedient. Uh, a parent raising a child to think for themselves, knowing that the goal is that they grow up and individuate, they need the not, and this other side, 
they need to believe what we believe, be in the religion we're in, have the political beliefs, and be obedient to us. That's not healthy developmental psychology. So for me, the 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 spirit doesn't like to be lied to. We don't like mm -hmm. to be exploited. We don't like to be tricked. And if it's shown to us in a way that can enter our world, that it's not because we're weak or stupid that we believed it, but this is a function of how the mind works. Like we adapt mm -hmm. to our environments and people and values in our environment and why it's so important to have diversity and have that mm -hmm. trust pod of people from many different points of view where you periodically are like, share something that you believe is really important and persuasive. Let's watch it together and discuss it. Let me share something that I think is really important and persuasive and let's discuss it. And, and I'm gonna quote Adam Grant, a social psychologist from Wharton, who um, I just love his books. He wrote a great book called Think Again. And his thesis there is we should separate our egos from our beliefs and just pursue what's true and be prepared mm -hmm. to change our, our, our thoughts if there's something that fits reality and serves us better. And mm -hmm. for the most part, a lot of people who love each other, like close siblings, family group members have cut off contact, often the the left, the progressives have cut off contact with the right and it propels them deeper into that silo instead of and what I've been saying from the beginning of the Trump presidency especially is like stay in touch, be warm, remind them of the good times, find the common mm -hmm. ground and just say, listen, I respect you, I love you, I don't understand how you believe what you believe but I'm prepared to change my mind. Help me understand mm -hmm. what were the things that you were using in your mind that made you go from hating Trump to loving Trump. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. often it's a, it's a video, a, a propaganda video, or it's a certain uh, silo group on Facebook or whatever. And we unpack it. The other thing, and then I'll stop talking, <laughs> Chloe, forgive me. I'm no, no, that's great. But the other thing is I'm really advocating for more former members of controlling relationships or MLMs or trafficking or political cults or therapy cults to start sharing their story. Mm -hmm. And and we mm -hmm. can destigmatize the whole the whole thing of, you know, yep, happened to me, but I got out. Hashtag I got out. Uh, and life's mm -hmm. good. I'm so glad to mm -hmm. not have to ask permission if I can go visit my mother in the hospital from mm -hmm. like from my superior in the group. It's like, no, I want to follow my heart and my gut and my my conscience and my values and be true to myself and my my uh, and have a view that's sustainable that the world is one place that we're all in one place together. And we mm -hmm. are our brother or our sister's keeper, and that we have to be thinking about planetary survival at this point, and not just mm -hmm. who's going to win the next election cycle, or you know, operating in a corrupted system that's been corrupted mm -hmm. over decades. A very intentional dismantling of checks and balances, at least in the U.S. Sure. No, no, I, I, I mean, I think that's that's all good. I think the particularly with young people, and I'm, I'm asked this by parents a lot, 
about kind of nefarious online not it's not just this kind of Andrew Tate guy but there's lots of kind of very influential figures and not just influential figures but influential spaces and communities yeah and I think that's a really good point that you make that what I say to parents is how much time does your kids your usually your teenager um spend online versus how much time do they spend with you and what it's amounting to now, now and this this is you know going to be a, a sort of systematic reordering of how we kind of spend time and prioritize things that you you quite often will get young people who are spending 11 12 13 hours act not just kind of glancing at their phone i think you know most young people teenagers all of us to some extent are somewhat on our phones all of our waking hours we're always conscious of our phones and glancing at it and, and doing all the things that we do on our phone but i'm talking about conscious on your phone doing stuff watching stuff being on your phone even if you don't realize you are and that is going to amount to a huge amount of power and influence. It doesn't matter who, who it is particularly they're watching, that that is going to be wrangling not just their time, but their personality. They're, they're sacrificing time, but also self to whatever yeah. kind of internet personality or, or space they spend a lot of time with. And it's hard yards. I think sometimes being a parent, you know, when they're young or they're teenagers, and I think the temptation to go, okay, fine, go on your phone, go on your laptop, go on your iPad, because it's easy and it's quiet and, and you, you don't get kind of the conflicts or the questions or just having to sort of spend time. And one of the things that I really noticed, because I, I travel a lot when I speak, um, both both recently and pre-pandemic was when I was in uh, Scandinavia and Scandinavia has a you know a, a legendarily very high happiness factor they you know really kind of centralized the family they've got kind of low divorce rate or you know lots of good things it was notable when you went to Scandinavian countries when you were in like kind of restaurants or public spaces how much more kind of active the parents were with their kids and how um, fewer sort of numbers of kids of, of varying ages were kind of on phones and screens compared to in the UK or when I travel in the USA. Um, so I, actually, it sometimes is a kind of a challenge that I put out to parents is is not is is not so much who are panicking about figures like Andrew Tate or, or you know their young their teenager or their their kind of child spending lots of times online, but it's it's not so much stopping them from doing it, but it's replacing that obsessive screen time with quality time with them. And that's really interesting when you present that as a challenge, because then it's kind of, I think it, it, it then questions or challenges their whole relationship, because it's then, oh my God, I'm gonna have to spend time with my kid and I'm gonna have to talk to my kid and we're gonna have to do activities. But that is an interesting kind of um, challenge, I guess, for humanity, isn't it? Because when you actually add up how much time and talent and all the thought and all the things that we perhaps used to do before smartphones and screen time that we've sacrificed to our phones and and how much we're losing as a kind of a race and in, in our relationships and our personal relationships our friendships and suddenly the that that ends up with the question of is this worth it do we want to sacrifice all this to tech companies who become trillionaires and trillionaires and trillionaires. And it's not to suggest, you know, we all become Amish and all, you know, you know, go go give up sort of phones and screens, because I think that's unrealistic. But it's genuinely 
being more thoughtful about the mindless scrolling, not just of ourselves, but I guess of our, our children and our teenagers, and actually thoughtfully replacing that um, again with human relationships, human contact. And I and I completely agree with you. And I think it's a long-winded way of saying it's not enough to say to anyone of any age group, you know, don't go on Facebook and go on QAnon groups or to a young person, don't go on TikTok or YouTube and watch Andrew Tate videos. It's much better to say, let's do something different. There's there's so many alternatives. And actually, I think that's a much better way of breaking the cycle and breaking the addiction to any of these groups or people. Um, and that's kind of the, often the best, a good piece of advice, I think, to start with, which is very similar to your point about you yes. know, ego and, and, and sort of really valuing more important things. And have I got 10,000 followers? Have I got 20,000 followers, 30,000 followers? Which is something we've become very, you know, we prioritize, I think, as, as a human race. Yep. And I'll just say from my work, if you tell someone, don't think of a white horse, they immediately think of it. And if you <laughs> yeah. tell a young person, don't watch this or don't go to that channel, you're telling them to do it, and, uh, and it, that's how their brain will hear it. So Absolutely. it's the wording is really important. And and I think just just the final point I may I'll make is because it's interesting you were talking about the seventies um, that uh, you know, and that was kind of one of the periods that was so wrapped up in kind of counterculture. Um, and that was, you know, before I was born, but like, you know, the music and the fashion and the drugs and and, and all those things were so um, synonymous with youthful rebellion. You know, it was really easy to, get, to kind of get into counterculture. And I think that was one of the, you know, why cults became so prolific at that time, because they were mirroring that. And that really scandalised older generations. If it was punk record or a tattoo, or you went off to a music festival, you joined a cult, or you got into Charlie Manson, or you know the Beatles or the Beach Boys, or all of those kind of things. That that was scandalous to older generations. You can't do that now if you're a teenager, which is a real one of the real pleasures of being young and being a teenager was annoying your parents or grandparents or teachers. And yep. you can't, kids, modern kids can't do that with music or tattoos or sexuality or music festivals because modern parents are kind of liberal and cool and probably share <laughs> the same records or tattoo artists. So this, and this is something I think that's missed an awful lot, that actually, Figures like Andrew Tate or these kind of, you know, even like someone like Joe Rogan is much more countercultural for young people. And it's much more shocking when their parents go, oh my God, my son or my daughter is actually into this, this kind of, you know, quite right wing, um, you know, online figure who has espouses these quite kind of conservative red pilly ideas. And actually that scandalizes the parent far more than, you know, getting a tattoo. And I think quite often that's missed the countercultural appeal of these spaces or figures online that annoy your parents far more than going off to Glastonbury Festival or something, which you would have done in the 70s or even 80s or 90s. That's very interesting. And, and I'm going to think about that some more. But for me, you know, I am a parent of a 20-year-old uh, gay son, I will add. Um, you know, for me, uh, it, it, saying, oh, you're interested in Joe Rogan, sh share with me the latest one you listened to that was interesting, and let's talk about it and engage mm. in entering their world in Absolutely. a way that is respectful. 
Absolutely. And I think also when you do that, it pierces the forbidden nature of it. Because how many how many punk percent. records, uh, how many punk records is forbidding or banning something sold or or clothes or a, any time you forbid something or ban it, it's you know and now on the internet it's the Streisand effect it goes astronomical and if yeah. the response is actually okay let's let's share this and understand it then suddenly it becomes less like the forbidden fruit and I think that's a really powerful strategy too. Yeah, and I will add that Joe Rogan had me on in two thousand and fifteen. And um, what was and, that like? And, what was he like? And Trumpers and Trumpers are like, you're on Joe Rogan, really? And and all of a sudden, I have a little bit more credibility. Um, what was it like? I I you know was in person. I was out in L.A. And interestingly, he found out that I was raised Jewish. So he started asking me about Judaism. And I've never, mm -hmm. in my 47 years of doing interviews, had anyone so curious about learning yeah. how could I believe in Judaism? And I conveyed that it's not ultra-Orthodox Judaism with the with the locks on the side of the hair and the black hats. Like that's not Judaism to me. That was a, a, a leftover from the Holocaust and people who are trying to preserve the culture of that age. Um, anyway, but I, he invited me to come back on and pr promoted my book, Combating Cult Mind Control. And then when the cult of Trump came out, I was like, I'm going to do Joe Rogan. Hey, Joe. And it's like, mm, sorry, pass. Didn't want to oh, talk no. about it. Oh, I mean, I mean, I think that that actually, I mean, that's definitely his sweet spot, isn't it? From the little I know about him, it's it's exploring things that other people don't ask about. And I guess probably at that point, you know, there was such a zenith of Trump chatter. It was probably, you know, it, on his show. Um, but yeah, that, that sounds like it was a, I bet that was an interesting experience at the very least. Definitely. And I've been on Fox and I will not, I mean, I, I say no to RTTV, Russian propaganda, but years before I, I did an interview or two for RT, um, cause I want people to understand what I'm teaching and sharing and that mm -hmm. I'm a human being. And I'll just add a quick comment. I was invited to Moscow and the Soviet Union fell apart by psychiatrists and psychologists. And my books had been translated into Russian, pirated. Um, uh, so they wanted to know all these cults are coming from the West. Like, who are they and what are they and what do we do about it? And so I was presenting my models and they were like, uh, Dr. Hassan, do you understand? You're describing the whole system of pedagogy of the Soviet Union. And I'm like, mm. yes. And do you understand we would put dissidents in psychiatric hospitals because they were criticizing the regime. Anyway, long story short, oh, you're counseling us. And I was like, if the shoe fits, you know, this is the model. And what people in the public don't understand, if you were raised in an authoritarian government political system, that's how you continue to think, even if you emigrate to Israel or somewhere else. Yeah. And especially if you're still listening to the propaganda channels every day, you're going to be still programmed uh, to think along those lines rather than another point of view. No, of, of course. And I, I think, uh, you know, you, there's no point in preaching to the choir. And I completely agree with you. I think, you know, again, talking to a bunch of people who can agree with you is crazy. And it's much more challenging to 
you know, challenge people who aren't necessarily natural converts. But the, the Russian model is really interesting. And I, I don't think people have given account for how influential it's become because their thing is uh, is chaos and confusion. And you do see that, oh, I mean, oh my God, in so many age groups. It's, it's the, and, and I think it's being replicated by all kinds of kind of political parties, you know, for all kinds of reasons, that it's not necessarily even like left and right um, or, or liberal or, you know, kind of conservative. It's this notion of everything is kind of chaos and that there is so much information and there's, you know, and there's so much noise that you can't, simply can't distinguish what's real and what's fake anymore. And that is absolutely the case. And I mean, it's it's really interesting when you talk to young people. And again, I think this is the attraction to these kind of strong main characters is this absolute sense of chaos, the sense of not just, I don't know what to believe, but very much almost, it's not really even nihilism, it's just confusion. It's like nothing is real. And I think that is really inherited from the Russian model of just, just create, you know, flood the zone with complete chaos. It's Russian, but it's American intelligence too. I'll cite William Lind from the 19, early 1980s, who wrote a, a paper <laughs> on the fourth generation warfare, where he said, you know, psychological warfare is going into an area where we need to create distrust, distrust in experts. Yes distrust in science, distrust in institutions, in order to create chaos and confusion, which will render people more vulnerable to the authoritarian voice. I've got this. Mm -hmm. I know what needs to happen. And if you're overloaded and if you are confused and disoriented and someone is so certain the certainty thing is a big persuasive mm. piece for anybody, adults too, and for me, I have an allergy to anyone who's certain. Like, I much respect someone oh, who's totally. like, I kind of think this, I'm open to that, or, you know, I used to think this and that. I'm much more responsive to people who are self-aware <laughs> that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a talk a couple, just a couple of weeks ago uh, with some 16-year-olds, and there was a number, it was a mix, male and female, and there was a number of boys in there who were, had become real Andrew Tate converts. And one of them said, and one of my things is, is being very non-judgmental. You know, it, sure. you, you have to listen to, 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 you know, people's reasonings. And one of the boys said to me, um, the reason I like Andrew Tate is because he teaches you how to be better with women and girls and more girls will fancy you. Okay. So I said to the girls, um, girls, how many of you put your hands up if on learning that a boy that maybe you even previously liked is really into Andrew Tate. Put your hand up if that's made you likely more likely to make you fancy him or go out with him. Not a single hand went up. And girls that have actually said, no, that would immediately red flag put me off. And I said to the boys, there's a bunch of girls there who are, you know, countering what he's saying, but th this is not working. And you could see, you know, some of them going, oh, okay. But a couple of them are like, no, it works. And I said, there's literally a demonstrable group, you know, a, a group that's telling you exactly the opposite. And they are girls. They're an expert on this, far, far more than he is. And they just wouldn't have it. So, yeah, again, it's it, it's very much this sort of Gen Z, Gen A thing of, yeah, questioning not just kind of facts, but reality. And I think that, again, 
is a direct consequence of us growing up in the digital, digital world and online that people can say black is white and white is black and up is down and down is up. And if people are, you know, trust the person enough or, or you know, it's, you know, the, the right kind of mood or time of day, they will question their own senses and they will, they, they will very willingly believe what's obviously not true. Yeah, I love your your demonstration in real life. And I would just say from my work, being the strategic interaction person, I would say to that young man, because um, understanding there are situational, social contextual uh, pressures that he may need to stay, stick with his guns, to say something like, I'm curious, how long have you been aware of Andrew Tate and this philosophy? If you go back before you ever heard of him, what was your thoughts about girls? That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. And then the other thing is, okay, so you feel that way right now. I'm curious, what would you use as markers that would indicate to you it's time to re reformulate whether or not Andrew Tate is a reliable um, actor in your life? and actually will produce what is that they promise. And I do this a lot with multi-level marketing uh, cult members who think they're gonna make a million dollars part-time. And I'm like, so how many months are you willing to keep spending mm. endless amounts of hours? You know, and how much money would you need to make by the end of six months before you step back and go, okay, I made a promise to myself. If I don't make X, I'm out. You know, so it's mm -hmm. just seeding some things, but encouraging them to to think, oh, I should make a, I should have some criteria for evaluating whether or not this yeah. is working for me or not. No, and I mean, I I, I think the sunk cost principle. I mean, I don't know whether sunk it cost gets worse fallacy. As you yep. Yeah, and and I and I think. It's, it exercises more powerfully on some people than others, but it but it is it is very interesting how how quickly that kind of worms its way into not everybody, but susceptible individuals, um, and and I think you know it you know to get to the QAnon point, it's it's the, the this kind of falling for things. Um, it doesn't even really matter necessarily what the thing is. The, w w there is some clearly something there is. Uh, you know, a, a viral level and a viral need in humanity to, to be part of something. Um, and unfortunately, often, you know, quite nefarious people abuse that. And I guess uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is how that, that can turn something good. And, and you, I mean, and you do see a lot, I mean, you know, so for example, the, on the flip side of it, a lot of people on the right will say that Greta Thunberg is cultish thinking and she's indoctrinating young people because she's making them believe the climate exists. Um, and it's really interesting that they, you know, on, on the other side, and, and or, or they genuinely think, you know, you, you hear that kind of, you know, the Democrats are an evil cult who want to, you know, turn everything into kind of Sharia law and drag queen story hour in every primary school. So it's really interesting how everything is seen in the in these kind of terms of, of I guess, you know, which is great for you, this kind of cultish thinking. So I guess trying to be sympathetic on the flip side, or that feminism is is a cult that seeks to right. kind of, you know, 
cut all men's balls off and make them into these kind of neutered beings, which, you know, so, so it, right. it is, I, I guess it's all down to perspective. But again, and I think it's absolutely to your point, a lot of this is about kind of ego and it's also about education. And I think it's choosing your sources wisely and, 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 and yes. choosing them kind of fully, you know, not getting into these information bubbles. Exactly. And uh, I would say that developmentally, what, you know, what we as psychology people know uh, is more advanced development is the capacity to hold many different paradigms at the same time, holding on to your own, but being able to create models in your mind and step into them and go, oh, wow, this is how they're thinking. That's but hold yeah. your hold your ground on on who you are. We'll hold the line on what's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's I I think of self as a dynamic, not as a as a static thing. Anyway, I, our hour is flown by. You're fascinating. I, I want you to share a little bit more as we wrap up on you know your prognosis or your some of your suggestions for um uh the future and and tell us more about your sub stack and and other plans that you may be engaged in that you want to share well i mean i i think that there's particularly with young people there's a sort of almost like a battle for the soul um and you you've got on the one hand when you talk to young people you've got this very very um visionary ethical really uplifting kind of silo who wants to change the world and really feel like you know they've inherited a bit of a mess and they have a vision for, for how to improve things um and you kind of see you know you are seeing changes in sort of politics and culture and the shift away from this sort of very kind of monolithic representation to something that's much more diverse um and, and much more visionary but you do have this pull um, you know, that's particularly propelled by kind of, you know, the Andrew Tates and the QAnons and the Donald Trumps of this world that, tell, you know, do push this idea that everything is about self and nothing matters. And the only thing that matters is kind of, um, you know, essentially their power or, you know, which is by proxy your power. And everything is about kind of limiting other people. And this, and, you know, and I don't want to get into this kind of binary good versus evil right. thing at all. But I think there is a battle for this kind of what what will win out sort of sort of hope or something much darker. And at the moment, I, I'm actually, you know, sometimes it's difficult to say on days what will win out. And I, that, you know, there's been sort of some good signs and some bad signs. So I did, so the point being is don't fall for this idea that every young person is this visionary person who wants to make the world better. That's not true, but do not fall either for this idea that, you know, there's this, this incredible darkness and nothing is going to get better. I think, you know, that, that there is, both can be true at the same time. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, you know, me, um, my, I, I sort of, you can find me at chloecombi.net. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't really do Instagram. Um, I, um, have a Substack. I have books. Um, I have a podcast called You Don't Know Me, which is really interesting if you're into young people. Um, and I'm always, you know, 
hired by lots of brands and governments to talk about the future because I think having this understanding of young people gives you this excellent insight into where we're going. And future and people mistake futurists. They think that you're saying that you can tell the future. And what you're actually <laughs> doing is studying the, studying the future, a bit like a chemist yeah. studies chemistry. So that's kind of where my interest lies. And I think, you know, an understanding of next generations gives you it's, it's about as close to a crystal ball as you can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And children are our future. So uh, if anyone's a parent, uh, I'm going to go back to your earlier comment about kids are spending 11 hours online. How many hours are you spending with your kid a day or even a quality half hour a day where the phone's off and you're sharing a meal or doing something uh, together to, um, to connect? Um, that that's going to be huge. And I know that I'm guilty. My kid growing up was like, dad, you're on the phone all the time. You know, how come I can't have a phone? And, uh, you know, and I rationalized and justified, I have to do work and da, 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 da. But I actually did work before the smartphone was invented. <laughs> Surprise. It's all about modeling. Absolutely. Yes, you, can't, you, can't, you can't be what you can't see. And you, if, if you see someone from a very young age who's always on their screen, it's inevitable that you're going to start replicating that behavior. Yep. And, and to stop, you know, so I've started turning off my phone 30 minutes to an hour before I go to sleep at night so that it's not in my head that I'm thinking about what I've accomplished that day and I'm thinking about what I want to accomplish tomorrow and um, trying to focus on what I've accomplished versus what I still need to do or feel you know, like I'm missing out on accomplishing my goals. And so, um, but life's a journey and I really do believe there's hope, but we, a lot of well-intentioned people need to come together and share their you know, respective resources to think about okay, there are these authoritarian actors wanting to perpetuate cigarettes or perpetuate oil, fossil fuel stuff or whatever, that they're going to keep doing what they want for greed or power. What can we do, you know, that's healthy and normal to turn things in a healthy way? And it really is the weather, you know, alerts are in our face all the time we can't just say it's not it's not true anymore and no. uh, and now i'm i'm seeing some of the big corporations going oh we're working on global climate but what are they doing no they're not mm -hmm. and they're doing you know uh, excessive profiteering while other people are you know suffering and it's just not yeah. fair so thank you for being you and continued success. And I hope we get to meet in person at some point. And uh, thank Absolutely. you so much for being on the Influence Continuum. Thank you very much, Dr. Hassan. Take care. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. 
If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.